Good, good morning, everybody. Uh, 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 I was asked to talk a little bit about um, the movement uh, uh, that's going on in psychiatry toward preemptive and disease-modifying therapies uh, and what that means for us as a, uh, as a research field and what role genetics might play in that, um, in that, uh, in that transition. So that's um, uh, what I'm going to do today. Um, uh, uh, I'm a clinical trialist. My um, sort of academic specialty is as a clinical trialist, and um, I, I design, uh, conduct, and analyze, report clinical trials that go from phase one all the way up through, hey, Vicki, all the way up through uh, uh, phase four um, pragmatic trials. Um, I know a lot about uh, uh, this one thing and a little bit about a lot of other things, which makes me a pretty good leader and ad administrator. Um, so I know enough about uh, genetics to be uh, a little, actually maybe a lot dangerous. <laughs> so, so I'm actually really looking forward to, um, to uh, uh, learning things from you and the conversation that we'll have together. And it's fine with me if you want to interrupt me. If we don't get all the way through, that's perfectly okay. Okay, so if something comes up as I talk that um, piques your curiosity or you have an objection of conscience to something that I say, um, please, you know, fire up and we'll just let the conversation go where, where it goes. Uh, <clears throat> so these are my disclosures. I have lots of relationships with a whole bunch of different companies. I haven't done any promotional work for industry since the mid-1990s and think that Duke got to make, basically ban participation by uh, academic uh, researchers, actually by anybody who works here in speakers' bureaus or speaker training or doing promotional work with, with industry. On the other hand, I think that public-private partnerships are actually the heart of what we're going to be doing over the next 20 years. So um, it's really important that we preserve that aspect of the collaboration. Um, so you've all uh, seen this. This is what the whole enterprise is about. Um, developing predictive markers so that we can move to stratified medicine and ultimately to personalized medicine, that is to pick out among the large group of patients who are, um, who are ill, uh, who should get a particular treatment and who should not get a, um, a, a particular uh, a treatment. And ultimately, um, with personalization, the idea would be to intervene early in the, um, in the course before uh, uh, patients become, uh, become symptomatic. So moving to preemptive uh, treatments that prevent the onset of illness or act in the program of the illness to prevent the full, uh, full uh, illness from developing. Um, so to do this um, in psychiatry, uh, uh, we need to make a big kind of theoretical and practical um, jump. For the most part, the treatments that we have in psychiatry are uh, aimed at people who are sick, often actually quite sick for quite a long period of time. Uh, and uh, they are um, palliative at best. We do not have um, any curative treatment for any major psychiatric illness. And a large chunk of that is because we don't really know beans about the fundamental biology of, of most of these illnesses. And the illnesses that we treat, like depression, are in fact not illnesses um, per se. They're probably 10,000 forms of depression, um, just like there are multiple forms of breast cancer. Um, so we're a long way from being able to realize preemptive, personalized medicine for any um, psychiatric illness, with, with maybe a few exceptions, which I'll talk about. Um, so the first thing I want to do is just to define preemption. So typically, um, uh, uh, the view of, of prevention or preemption that is interrupting before the illness develops 
in, uh, in mental illness has involved um, uh, altering environmental risk factors, so improving neighborhoods, keeping families together, uh, uh, ensuring good nutrition. Prenatal care is probably the best single preventive thing that we could do to prevent mental illness. Denmark has half the rate of mental illness as, uh, not, not for disorders like schizophrenia, which are, which are to some extent environment, environmentally less dependent, but for depression um, uh, or uh, some of the anxiety disorders in particular, uh, the environment plays a huge role. And so Denmark has half the rate that we do of depression. Um, uh, the only explanation that makes any sense is they're just a better run country than we are. We're not a very compassionate place and seem to be getting less so. So that's the kind of um, standard model um, for <clears throat> preventive medicine and psychiatry, which is to fix environmental risk factors, particularly early childhood to uh, toxic stress. And um, anything that I say uh, that is more biological doesn't at all mean to criticize this approach. It's absolutely essential. Um, uh, so, but here, what I'm, what I'm uh, wanting to talk with you about is a different view of of preemption, which is targeting biological processes that underlie mental illness. So Tom Insel, who's the current director of the National Institutes of Mental Health, and actually the acting or interim director of, NCAT, of uh, uh, NCATS, the new Translational Sciences Institute, uh, says that a preemptive approach promises to reduce morbidity and mortality by intervening early before the full syndrome develops and realign the trajectory of development so that the individual identified as at risk has the greatest opportunity um, for the best outcome. So there are two things in this, in this comment um, uh, which are critical. One is uh, you need some sort of a test, a biomarker-based test, to identify individuals that are at risk that would allow you to have um, uh, uh, the kind of predictive validity that you need in order to be able to give somebody a drug who isn't sick yet. Um, and the second thing uh, uh, is that these are trajectory-based models. If you think about prevention, what you're really doing is altering a, 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 a developmental trajectory which is either off track or going to go off track and that you want to do something before the person is sick to, to realign biological processes so that they are um, uh, on the normal uh, developmental uh, tra trajectory. Um, so that's the key, those are the two key aspects of, of this um, model. So to summarize that or maybe to put it uh, out there in a little bit more detail, we need a biologically-based theory of disease in which time is an integral part of the model. Typically, in, in, uh, and you all know this, particularly those of you that work in, a, in the adult world, we either don't deal with time, age is a proxy here for time, um, uh, we set the in and exclusion criteria up for our studies so that we don't have to deal with time, we restrict it, or we treat it as a nuisance variable and try to covary it out. Um, but in fact, the whole idea of trajectory-based medicine means that time is integral to the model, and it's not only not a nuisance variable, it's actually the critical variable that we have to, we have to look at. We need predictive tools in the form of biomarkers or biosignatures. Uh, we need to develop, based on this bio, uh, biomarker sciences effort, uh, novel interventions that prevent or forestall illness. Um, and we need some way in this grand mix of things to think about individual vari variability. It's long past the time that we're going to be able to do this in studies of 30 of these and 30 of those. We have to actually move, as you all might imagine and are trying to do here, toward a more systems biology approach that has tens of thousands, maybe millions of, of, of patients and all of the variability um, that is inherent in a large sample size like that because that's, in, in essence, that's the basis for doing personalization. Mm -hmm. 
chasm between, you know, if, you, if you're approaching trying to <coughs> get somebody during a prodromal phase by a better understanding their biology, um, I mean, does it go without saying there that you're identifying a new pathway, something that, that through the biomarker you, you know, the, the practicality, the biomarker comes when you've got human beings who have variability and you get a biomarker that explains some of the variability, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Don't you need then before in that leap to novel intervention, do you need to understand um, the, the variability in terms of different perturbations of a, of a normal system? You, you absolutely do need to understand what's normal before you can figure out what's atypical. Um, and, um, uh, uh, and we don't, by any means, understand all of that. You also need, in the same sense that we need, and I'll talk a little bit about this, in the same sense that you need to know the driver pathways for mental illness, you need to know passenger off trajectory pathways that don't matter, um, and the interactions between all of these things. And, and for example, there's a fair bit of work now looking at the uh, sort of mTORP um, uh, uh, signal transduction cascade, but everything points to that. So it's, you know, it's kind of not very useful to say that that pathway is in, involved because it's not specific enough. So there's a tremendous amount that has to be figured out to be able to, to do this. So with the creation of NCATS and the focus on drug development, that I think we're all sort of relieved to um, be approaching. Uh, and Jesse just came in the room, so I'm fascinated to know what Jesse's orientation is. How can we take what Ingenuity did for you know early um, sorting out of, pa of signaling pathways and understanding the things that we understand in cancer now versus are starting to understand? How can we take Ingenuity and which is we describe what Ingenuity is? A lot of people probably know, but John, do you know what Ingenuity is? Oh. Uh, it's a company where they've taken um, PhD level curators and read literature, and they have all these pathways, basically all the known pathways in the literature, curated, you know, not just kind of mished together with um, artificial intelligence or anything, but really thought through, and um, you can query it, and you can, you know, query for a gene, and then find out what interacts with that, and then you can filter based on only in these systems or only under these conditions. Yep, so I, so I actually have a slide on that. Oh, do you? Not on ingenuity, but, but on, on doing something like that. So I'm just, and, I, I think there's a whole new uh, métier in drug development mm -hmm. that is going to be sorting druggable targets from non-druggable targets. Mm -hmm. They're going to be targets that, that um, inform the neurobiology mm -hmm. and targets that help you stratify populations in practical ways so that you can populate clinical trials or select people for specific therapies. But there's a whole different orientation which is going to require medicinal chemistry, analytical chemistry, all kinds of stuff that we don't necessarily have around us all the time, um, of people who are going to be challenging these putative pathways to see mm -hmm. whether they're druggable. <coughs> and I, I can imagine um, that you are in a great position to sort of be around the table when that happens. And it, it's going to, Tom Insel is definitely going to make it happen. Yeah, well, you know, the, we'd like to see that, the, that that's going to be the case. I have a, a, a huge sense of, um, let me put it differently, I think this whole thing is actually really humbling. Oh, totally. <laughs> that uh, uh, there are more neurons in the, in the brain than there are galaxies in the universe. 
um, and trying to understand the complexity of this is just daunting. So my guess is what will happen is that there'll be a huge, well, we'd like to think there'd be a huge amount of money thrown at it, but it looks like it's going to be a, a smaller pie um, uh, going forward. Um, uh, but at least that pie will be directed at, at experimental medicines development. Uh, and somewhere in this mess will be um, will be a novel observation. And it may well, let's use genetics for example, it may well be some new um, polymorphism that um, tells us uh, something about a pathway that nobody thought of before, which is relevant um, to a particular, uh, say, information process, which is involved in a, one of these disease states. Um, um, that polymorphism may uh, uh, elucidate something which is druggable, or more likely what it'll do, it'll tell us something about the pathway, and on that pathway will be a druggable target, and then now you're off to the races with the, the usual um, uh, bits for assay development and high-throughput screening and all that stuff, which I'll also talk about. So a lot of this is going to turn on serendipity, mm -hmm. and that serendipity is going to depend on where the investments go, and I think the NIH has got, the, has got it right. I don't like it very much because there are lots of questions that are relevant for current generation treatments that need to be asked for clinical purposes. But to get something that is going to be uh, a home run for patients with, under, under situations where the pie is shrinking, um, the, the current strategy is the right strategy. <clears throat> So, uh, uh, so this is basically the grand challenge. I don't know how many of you know Jane Costello in the um, developmental epidemiology program, but she said prevention and development are inter uh, intimately intertwined only when we understand the developmental course of a symptom or a disorder. Um, and I would say actually more relevant to this, an information process. Can we have a solid under scientific understanding underpinning for prevention, a well-defined prevention trial? will implicitly or explicitly test a developmental theory of disease. So again, the idea that trajectories are central to this, um, to this effort. Now that means that we need to move, um, we need to move uh, toward a model for mental illness, which is, um, which is trajectory-based, and that means we need to start thinking about kids, which means we need to put a lot of money into translational developmental neuroscience rather than studies of adult organisms. And here's why. If you look at... Um, retrospective studies in adults, or you look at the epidemiology of mental illness in kids, it's really clear that these are disorders which start early in life. You can pick out all the major mental illnesses, with a couple of exceptions, by kids, um, by, uh, and kids that are uh, in the preschool years. Um, now, uh, it turns out um, that uh, even though the symptoms begin to develop early, there's usually an eight to 10 year lag before these kids are identified as mentally ill. Part of that is you have to fall off the developmental trajectory far enough that people get alarmed about it and you're not as far off at two as you will be at six, for example. <clears throat> and there's this whole prejudice toward thinking about kids as having diseases that need to be, brain diseases that need to be treated. Um, but nonetheless, if you, if you anticipate doing um, pre prevention, the fact that that we don't identify these kids early, and we don't um, we don't begin to treat them for eight or ten years after their symptoms development uh, develop. We're um, a long way off the mark for where we uh, for where we uh, need to the, to be. For the, for the category that you were just showing in that previous slide, how many of those are completely environmental, and how many of them have a genetic or some other personal component? 
The only completely environmental uh, mental illness is post-traumatic stress disorder. And, it, and, uh, and why I say that is that if you are entirely robust as a human being, no vulnerabilities, you know, you're just, a, you're just a, one of these genetic, you know, freaks that is, is happy, beautiful, smart, you know, everything works perfectly. Uh, uh, you didn't need to go to a dentist to get straight teeth. I mean, you just have all the advantages, right? And you put that person in war. And I've seen people like this. Uh, uh, you can develop terrible post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, but for the most part, these are um, going to be either genetic diseases like Fragile X, where the genetics explains most of the variants, or they're going to be um, gene-by-environment interactions, like the relationship between early toxic childhood stress and schizophrenia or depression. Yeah, so pre prenatal insults are, are really important. Maternal smoking, for example, is a significant risk factor. Low birth weight, significant risk factor. And there are all sorts of things that happen in the environment that are likely to be triggers for, uh, for, um, for mental illness besides the kinds of things that we've been talking about that are sort of behavioral environmental risk factors. For example, there are millions of, of uh, toxic substances in the environment, and PCBs, um, uh, uh, I'm just blanking on the um, phthalates, uh, you know, are all um, in environmental um, studies associated, for example, with the development of ADHD. So we have a very messy environment filled with all kinds of nasty things, and we're probably robust to most of those as adults, but if you think about a developing child where the brain is undergoing these massive, you know, transitions, um, windows of vulnerability, these things are are all neurotoxic and not, not good for you. Even things like Tylenol um, are actually probably bad for the developing brain. Ultrasound scrambles neurons in, um, scrambles neurons in, uh, in uh, tissue culture. So I advise all my friends when they get pregnant to have one for dates at 16 weeks and not to have another one. Um, so we just don't know. Bruce? I was just going to say, Well, you know, we have these sort of bi bi binary models. Um, is it psychiatric or is it envir you know, vi environmental or, you know, what area of medicine owns it? Um, there's a lovely Jefferson Airplane song that says the human name doesn't mean shit to a tree. <laughs> uh, so uh, there are people who think that uh, compulsive overeating or reward-driven eating, which is what happens when you go to McDonald's, I mean, they've fine-tuned those things to induce craving and all the advertisement that surrounds it are really an addiction in the same way that cocaine is an addiction, that eating a, Mc, uh, a McDonald's french fries actually activates, powerfully activates the reward systems. Um, anorexia, on the other hand, has got um, a significant genetic um, component. It's not reward-driven in um, the same way. So um, this is not my area. I don't know all that much about it. So. Uh, but they're all psychiatric in you know, the sense that they're brain diseases or have some CNS component to them. Uh, so if you think about this trajectory model, there's actually a trajectory for when these illnesses develop. You see 
ADHD and autism uh, early, you can actually see anxiety and depression, sort of antisocial or disruptive behavior early as well. You have other disorders that tend to show up in full flower <coughs> um, in middle school or teenage, uh, teenage years. And what we need is markers which uh, tell us uh, the kind of um, subtle off trajectory uh, 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 phenomenon that are happening before the full uh, disorder uh, develops. So that, for example, in a schizophrenia program, we could pick out in a seven or eight year old a kid who um, has the kind of cognitive uh, information processing deficits that would, um, that would uh, uh, lead you to think that child is at risk for schizophrenia. The problem is those same information processing deficits are also seen in, um, in uh, uh, kids with autism um, and, by the way, in kids with epilepsy, and they share some of the same underlying genetics. Uh, uh, Pathways, yeah. So it, it's actually probably not helpful to think about mental illness in the conceptual framework that we've, you know, we've built up over the years um, based on phenotype. It's going to be much more interesting to think about it based on genes driving circuits which process information. And I'll talk a little bit about that as we get farther along. So this is a um, an imaging study by. Um, by uh, folks from Judy Rappaport's group. Actually, the guy who got all this started was Jay Geed, who was one of my students here when I first came to Duke um, from the intramural program at the uh, NIMH. And uh, basically, if you look at that at that bottom row, um, on, the bo on the bottom, the dark blue, is the normal development of prefrontal cortical thickening. So these are, um, these are uh, structural MRI images. And uh, what you see over on the, on the right in the prefrontal cortex um, in the light green line is um, is sort of the the um, is the normal pattern of development of the prefrontal cortex, and in the dark blue line is that pattern for kids with ADHD. Um, they're lagged about four years, so the old adage "he'll just grow out of it" is to some extent true. And we don't know what the genetics of this is, but there's a lag in prefrontal cortical development, which predicts to a lag in um, executive function, um, response inhibition, the kinds of things that are characteristic of kids with, with ADHD. On the other hand, schizophrenia um, is actually a neurodegenerative, neurodegenerative disorder. This is, on the left, uh, again, looking at uh, gray matter uh, in the, um, across the uh, in, entire brain. But what's particularly interesting in here is that is the, um, is the temporal lobe, uh, uh, this little bit of the prefrontal cortex and all these sensory association areas. Um, uh, which uh, show significant loss of gray matter um, during the schizophrenia prodrome and full flowering of schizophrenia. So basically, in a time of, of uh, uh, sort of middle school adolescence where there's enormous brain reorganization and um, uh, uh, pruning, um, so both things are going on. There's a lot of um, neuroplasticity aimed at new neurons and new neural connections patterns of of neurons, there's also dramatic um, pruning as part of this. You have this sort of massive volume loss, uh, uh, which, uh, which uh, if not caught early, is irre irreversible. Jesse? Naive question. Um, do you measure gray matter? How do they measure gray matter loss? It's not from the autopsy, right? There's no need. No, it's using structural MRI. Structural MRI. No, it's using structural MRI. You can do white matter and gray matter imaging. So this is actually not um, terribly sophisticated imaging. 
There's a lot more sophisticated ways to do this now, but at the time these studies were done, that's what they had available. So, so there are a whole variety of um, of genetic vulnerabilities in these kids, uh, uh, most of which fall into two clusters. One is uh, the genes that support um, either neuronal plasticity or synaptic plasticity, uh, uh, which are which are essentially the genes that support learning, um, at least in part. And then uh, the other component is genes that are involved in um, in neuroinflammation. And actually, we're trying to work with a little company around um, an inhibitor of microglial activation because all this involves powerful activation of um, the sort of neuroinflammatory um, pathways. And we kind of wonder if you turn some of that off, if it would work in the program. Um, uh, but the point here is that this is a very different disease than ADHD. Uh, and so you can't kind of point to a mental illness much less individual persons with mental illness and say that they're going to, going to run through even remotely similar mechanisms. No, it's a very good question. So this was a study done uh, in the NIMH intramural program where they identified children, actually, um, who, who, um, who showed very early signs of childhood onset schizophrenia, basically sort of phenotypic markers yeah. of kids in the program. And they um, followed them for, um, uh, I think, out to six or seven years. So these are, these are essentially um, uh, the product of... Uh, yeah, of looking at neuronal loss over a long period of time prospectively. Uh, and this same group has a lot of, has a lot of, done a lot of work on the genetics of these, of these kids. And as yet, I don't think there's a great link between the genetics and actually looking at, 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 uh, uh, at these MRI images. How much, um, how much of an effect do you think the MRI has? They did one annually or? Probably none. Yeah, probably none. But, but, yeah, yeah, but, yeah, as best as we can tell, it's, yeah, as best as we can tell, it's, um, it, it, it's, um, uh, basically, I don't know anybody who thinks that these things, now, if we were using 17 magnets and babies, you know, I don't, I don't know, actually, um, what would happen if you ramped up the image strength. Most of this was done at 1.5T or 3T. So, now, you know. Yeah, it's possible. No, other way around. Huh? Other way around. No, if you go back there, mm -hmm. like right in the front of the, the normal adolescence, there's a 3% loss that's not. Oh, right here? Yeah, so that's loss that's not lost in the schizophrenic. So you need to lose something. Yeah, no, there's a lot of pruning going on. And I actually don't know. This is orbital frontal cortex, and I don't actually know why that is. Never thought about it before. That's a really good observation. It's probably part of the problem with Floyd. <laughs> 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 yeah, really. Uh, 
So this is Alzheimer's disease, and normally we think about Alzheimer's disease when you're born, you get to be a teenager, and then you puddle along until you get to be my age, and then you do this. And, uh, 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 but in fact, if you look at the entorhinal cortex, which is this little jobby right here in the um, medial part of the temporal lobe, right up next to the hippocampus, which is the structure which is um, responsible for memory, um, this little guy, the entorhinal cortex, feeds information from the sensory integration cortexes into the hippocampus. And if you look on MRI images um, at people who have the APOE4 risk allele, um, those that are, um, that are homozygous for the, uh, 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 for the normal APOE pattern have larger uh, entorhinal cortices than those that are heterozygous as compared to those that are homozygous for APOE4. Um, so what that means is that it's a little like Parkinson's disease. If you have the, if you're heterozygous at APOE4, um, the damage is already actually starting down here. Um, but because you've got such an enormous reserve, you putter along for a long period of time, and, um, and eventually uh, this happens. Now, most of our treatments have been aimed at here, where there's actually an enormous amount of brain damage already in place. What they're trying to do um, is to move um, treatment back into, into this area, um, or even into this area based on biomarker tests, and I'll show you one in a moment, so that you can intervene before there's so much damage, like a fifth heart attack, that you can't do very much about it. But ultimately, if we're gonna deal um, successfully with Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or any of these diseases um, that have very long sleeper effects, um, we're gonna actually have to intervene back, back here before all this um, slowly accumulating um, uh, 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 sort of pathway-based uh, uh, damage happens. So if that normal aging pathway, so if you look at 125, it's the same as Alzheimer's? I mean, so if you just well, it, real long, super long life. Yeah, there, there may be. Um, yeah, we'll see. Actually, Downs is a nice model for studying this because Downs kids get Alzheimer's in their 30s and um, 40s. So uh, one of the problems is you might imagine that studying things prospectively when you have these long sleeper effects is a kind of hard thing to do. Um, yep. Yeah, yeah. Then I'll say in a bit in a moment about the neuroethics of all this because it's particularly interesting. Um, so if you want to read about this, I chaired a council work group on translational developmental neuroscience, and, and it's had a huge effect, actually, on reorienting the NIMH portfolio, and you can pull this off the web. Um, uh, now, why is this important when we think about interventions? Well, it's important because there are going to be windows of vulnerability. There are also going to be windows of therapeutic opportunity. Um, these uh, 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 putative pathways that are going to be targeted in uh, 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 relative to off-trajectory neural development um, are not active in a linear um, fashion. If you think about the major transitions of childhood, there's a lot that happens in the first two years, then things sort of slow down. Then there's a lot that happens in the transition to school, which is why it happens when it happens. Then there's a huge amount of brain remodeling and behavioral change that goes on in the transition into middle school um, and on through, through uh, high school and the young adult um, years. So we have to understand, actually, um, how off trajectory development happens in these nonlinear um, uh, uh, windows, um, and what this has to say about 
windows of opportunity for um, developing either uh, preemptive treatments or intervening very early in the course of the disease um, to uh, uh, help that um, patient um, return to on trajectory or a normal, a normal developmental uh, trajectory. And this is a really nice article um, in uh, 2011. It's the first article that actually seriously addresses this question of when should you target pharmacotherapy, which I put up here in part to tell you how primitive the field is, 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 uh, uh, is at this point. And there are actually no treatments that would tell us how to do this uh, or targets that would tell us how to do this, but at least people are beginning to think like this. Um, so to summarize, uh, we have um, a lot of stuff that's going on um, in fetal uh, development. After about uh, eight weeks, this is uh, entirely dependent on environmental um, input. The brain um, grows by learning. It requires um, uh, um, sort of internal and external environmental input in order to grow, uh, to grow uh, normally. Um, at some point, there's a perturbation, which is, uh, can be all genetic, like Fragile X, can be all environmental, um, like trauma, or typically it's going to be some mixture of environmental and, uh, and genetic um, uh, uh, perturbations. Uh, that can drop you off the developmental trajectory right away, or there can be some period of a sleeper effect. But at some point, you get far enough off that it comes to the attention of, of uh, the, the parents and the teachers, and, the, and you enter the medical um, system. And our job is to bring people back to a developmental trajectory. What we'd like to do is to get at it somewhere back in here um, before all this damage happens. And that's basically the goal of, of all of psychiatry. So the, the, uh, the put it really simply, if you look in the physician's desk reference, the PDR, at all the CNS drugs, and you look at all the side effects that all these drugs cause, nobody would ever take a psychiatric medication. Now, part, part of that is that we assume that for psychiatry, nobody should ever have a side effect, right? That's not true in the rest of medicine, but it, you know, this, the psychiatry haters think that you know, all of our drugs are basically poisons because they cause side effects, and there isn't a drug in medicine that doesn't cause side effects. Um, but that said, um, uh, uh, if you think about risk-benefit, unless you've got extremely good predictive validity, that is, you have a biomarker that says with 99% certainty that a person with this particular um, biomarker status is going to, at some point, develop a terrible downstream illness like schizophrenia, um, there's little justification for aiming a powerful medication that carries with it significant risk in a child for whom you're not actually sure that the downstream illness is going to develop. It's like so, off the breast and taking out the ovaries of a person because of the RCA um, yeah. mutation when you know, there's still a, um, a likelihood that... They're not going to develop breast cancer. They may not. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So now you look at this from a, the point of view of neuroethics, uh, and it gets really interesting. At, at one point, does the potential benefit outweigh the risk, and who should decide? Because the FDA, if you think about prevention trials in cardiology, statins for, you know, for MI or stroke, um, uh, at what point um, does the FDA register an indication for preemption? It's very interesting. Nobody knows. 
the, the use of the word decide, when you decide, makes me think that above and beyond um, biomarkers, what we need to use, work toward is decision support that would include um, therapeutic, uh, sort of non-pharmacologic yep. approaches, um, obviously development, um, environmental characteristics like stressors, mm -hmm. and, you know, it's conceivable to me that we will be so much better able to decide who really will benefit from a potentially toxic therapy um, if you're sort of networking all of these inputs. Yep. Unfortunately, it, it, you know, it requires uh, an intact system, care system. It requires a system that involves parents and teachers and physicians. Um, and, you know, the thing that's great that you're uh, comparing what psychiatry is up against to what cardiology is up against, I was just thinking about, well, CAD or type 2 diabetes, take type 2 diabetes. There are people who have a, a, a genetic predisposition to type 2 diabetes. Mm -hmm. There are environmental um, stressors and exposures that are going to promote insulin resistance and obesity and other things that exacerbate that risk. And then there are uh, pharmacologic as well as lifestyle interventions that are going to significantly mitigate the risk or the experience or the severity of type 2 diabetes. And you can either end up with, you know, your eyes shot, your, your kidneys shot, your, a stroke, and every, every imaginable negative sequela of type 2 diabetes, or you can, like, put all of the uh, interventional energy to staving off these dreadful things. There's no, I mean, is there any reason in the world why we shouldn't be thinking of brains in the same way? No, no. Actually, I gave this, I gave this talk um, at the DCRI. There is, actually. I gave, and I gave this talk at the DCRI a, a few months ago, and, and Bob Harrington and Eric Peterson came up afterwards, and they said, can I have those slides? You know, this is a generic talk. It's, it's, no it, it's no different than any other therapeutic area. It's just that psychiatry is a lot farther behind because the brain is a lot more complicated. And because people are prejudiced against mental Ill, mentally ill. Uh, yeah. And that's that's a that's a yeah. real but I mean, problem. But I think with, when you have heart disease and you're talking about statins, you're an adult and you're making a decision for yourself. You're talking about you know eight or nine year old children and you're a, yeah. you're you're making a decision for a child. I think there is a sense of you know is is that the best situation. Yeah. yeah, we're going to need really, really strong predictive biomarkers to do this, and those will fall out of, supposedly anyway, this investment in basic research, which will then lead to a kind of a translationally oriented biomarker sciences that allows the development of medicines. But imagine that you've got a really great biomarker. Uh, you have that, that same sort of um, pathophysiology in two kids. One of them um, has two Duke professors as parents, a smart kid, got great schools, um, has lots of friends, uh, just all the advantages in the world. Another uh, kid with the same biology uh, has a mom who lives in the projects, <clears throat> doesn't have a car, doesn't have health insurance, has four other kids by four different you know, guys. Same biology, guess one who's gonna, which one's going to have the better outcome. So there isn't any question that there's a lot of of variance in this picture that's going to be explained by other things than druggable, you know, druggable targets. And, and, you know, we have a culture which is prejudiced against 
kids. It's prejudiced against people of color. Um, and it's especially prejudiced against the mentally ill, which is part of the reason why I went into this. It's a civil rights issue. And uh, it's probably the last great civil rights issue. And uh, uh, so it's going to be really interesting when the biology starts to tell us why we are the way that we are. I mean, what's rational about nuclear weapons? I mean, really, I'll, I'll tell you it. If I, okay. I'll tell you, a, I'll tell you a story that was just. Yeah, I'm going to get off. I'm going to digress. <clears throat> so there was just a study published in um, in the Netherlands by a group of cognitive neuroscientists who took Dutch um, college kids, and uh, and they showed them pictures of other Dutch kids their age, uh, Germans, and um, people from the Middle East, and they just asked to have them fill out a likability questionnaire. How much do you like this person? Just by showing, you know, pictures. And these were neutral faces. They weren't, you know, they weren't people looking scary or anything. They were all dressed so that they, you know, looked like other college kids. And as you might expect, they liked the Dutch better than they liked the Germans, and they really didn't like the people from the Middle East so much. Um, now, uh, in, this, in this interesting study, they also introduced randomization to either get nasal oxytocin or not. And oxytocin is the hormone that um, induces uterine contractions and handles the milk, milk letdown reflex. And as you might imagine, the, the body's smart, and so this is one of the fundamental hormones that increases attachment huh. behavior. So, uh, uh, and you all know when a baby's born, the first thing that anybody says after is it healthy um, is, uh, oh, he looks just like so-and-so. Right, so the roots of tribal behavior start very early and and are in part driven by this uh, attachment system, which is based on these small neuropeptides, um, particularly oxytocin. So guess what happened when they gave oxytocin to these to these subjects and um, and then asked the same question in a randomized time? They liked the Dutch better and they hated the Germans and the Middle Eastern people more. You're kidding? No, the likability went down. So this is basically the roots of tribal behavior, and it's why we have things like nuclear weapons and wars and other kinds of bad things that humans do to each other. So it's part of our evolution. It enhanced Yeah, this kind of tribal affiliation, and we need to basically circle the wagons and hang out with people who look like we do. So once we understand this, we're actually going to have choices to make about whether we want to be like this or not. It's actually relatively straightforward to reverse this kind of um, overdetermined um, uh, emotional responding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of yeah, yeah. Well, I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know if anybody's done the experiment, but, but, um, but if you think about social neuros neuroscience, this whole question about the biology of attachment, you know, what support? What what is the underlying biology that supports relationships? Which are which are destroyed in autism um, and in schizophrenia. Um, it gets really in interesting because it goes to fundamentally um, questions about who we are and who we want to be, you know, as people and as a culture. So I'm actually pretty optimistic that a lot of this stuff is going to unlock enough about the biology that people are going to start to say, "Well, wait a minute. Actually, we do have we have choices here. It'll allow you to sort of step outside this deluded worldview we you know that we have now." And, um, and see ourselves dif differently. But it's also pretty scary when you think about, about you know, the place the world is in at the moment and how 
really incredibly overdetermined all this is by our evolutionary history and how how, how badly we behave um, uh, because of that evolutionary history. So. There's always going to be water. Oh, yeah. But, but at yeah. the beginning, so, was heter very heterogeneous. Uh, 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 another digression. <laughs> so about 30 years ago, there was a guy named Steve Sonomi who headed the primate labs at Wisconsin and now heads the primate lab at um, NICHD. And they took monkeys, uh, macaque monkeys, who were cage-reared through multiple generations and who'd never seen a snake. And they put a, uh, a snake in the cage, and the monkeys thought, this is great. You know, if you live in a cage, it's pretty boring. Mm -hmm. So the monkeys played with the snake. Um, uh, uh, then they did an experiment in which they took these same kind of monkeys, not the same monkeys, but monkeys that were cage-reared, and they put in the cage um, a wild-reared monkey for 24 hours. Uh, uh, and then they took the wild-reared monkey out, and they introduced the snake um, a week later. And the monkeys all went off and cowered in a corner. Now, nobody has any idea how it is that monkeys caught snake fears <laughs> um, just from being in the presence of a wild reared monkey. Everything else was completely the same. So basically, there's a whole mess of fears that are really easy to catch. Fears of the dark, fears of small animals, fears of snakes, fears of people who don't look like you. Uh, 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 and, and we operate under the assumption that, and, and it made sense in evolutionary terms. I mean, if you're a small, hairless you know, human being on the plains in Africa, a lot of this actually made a lot of sense. It doesn't make any sense in a world like the one we have now. Um, well, it does make sense, you know, not to go down a, you know, a street in a bad neighborhood if you're a woman at, you know, at two o'clock in the morning. I mean, that's just stupid. Um, uh, uh, not to, not to do any blaming to, um, here, but, 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, both, but, but the brain has all these mechanisms for risk assessment, and the mechanisms actually often don't play well in the modern world. Uh, so as we begin to understand the biology of all of this and how, it's, um, and how it's driven by our evolutionary history, including our genetic, you know, the evolutionary genetic history, we'll actually begin to have choices about what kind of human beings we want to be. And it can't happen soon enough as far as I'm concerned because it'll make thinking about the environment in relationship to these kinds of vulnerabilities much more um, sophisticated have much higher resolution for understanding how to organize our our culture so they minimize the kinds of risks that um, that uh, that happen alongside these uh, sort of more fundamental biological risks so this is how this would work if we did it in schizophrenia um, if you look at birth 15 20 25 and 30 uh, you have this kind of fall off in function as the which happens actually before you begin to see the early signs of psychosis in the teenage years or sometimes earlier. Um, then you have your first psychotic episode, which is where treatment happens. You get better, but you're still functionally impaired. You have a second psychotic episode. You get treated, you get better. 
you have a third episode, and after that, you're chronically mentally ill for the rest of your life. So this is a really bad model because you, you, have, you have really one chance to get it, and even there, you're not going to get functionally normalized most of the time. Um, if you let it go so that you've got two episodes or a third episode, uh, you're condemned to a life of, of a mental illness. Now imagine... If, if you have substance abuse. And yep. if, I mean, one, one drunk driving incident is going to cause a, a loss in self-esteem and a loss in stature. And the, the, a person who doesn't learn from that and is allowed to go further and further into multiple, they lose their license, they're on a moped, they... You know, yep. It's just, it's yep. Addiction biology is pretty much the same. Once you basically trash, once you trash your brain, it, you're now going to hope you can make the sucker float. You're not going to go back to normal again. So imagine that we could intervene here in the prodrome before this first psychotic episode happens. And now you see this. So that's, that's basically the model. And there are people now trying to do this uh, in, uh, in uh, teenagers in the prodrome of schizophrenia. The problem is, is that we don't have perfect treatments, and we don't have very good ways of identifying out here uh, who looks like this, who's actually going to have a first psychotic episode. So people are backing off doing this with drugs like the atypical psychotics and using low-risk interventions like high-dose omega-3 um, uh, fatty acids, just because the risk-benefit ratio is so unclear relative to the predictive validity of phenotypic markers. Please. Mm -hmm. So my question is, is that maybe some of these kids or teenagers are showing signs of depression as well. If they added a vilify on as the augmentation route, they maybe might be able to catch that right there with an atypical Yeah, so, um, so again, this whole question of is it depression or is it schizophrenia or is it both, actually the brain doesn't care very much. And schizophrenia has enormous... Um, aspects, aspects which involve mood dysregulation. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, and the drugs that also don't care about our silly diagnoses because they work for lots of different things, um, modulate lots of different um, uh, signaling pathways uh, which are involved in neurons that run on circuits that handle the Heinz 57 different information processes that when they're off trajectory make up these mental illnesses. So ideally what we'll have in the future is an information process-based nosology uh, 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 with a supportive um, uh, uh, kind of molecular understanding of what drives those information processes. And uh, uh, within that um, kind of molecular perspective will be druggable targets that modulate information processes, not these syndromal illnesses. And so we won't think about is it schizophrenia or is it depression. We'll think about which information processes are off the, off the developmental trajectory. And actually, people, have, uh, if I was doing this with a drug, I would pick a, I would pick um, aripiprazole as the drug that I would use. Well, most kids yeah. Yeah. Largely, the choice of Abilify wouldn't be on benefits; it'd be on side effects, mm -hmm. um, because the atypical. Uh, particularly, well, yeah, they cause, you know, metabolic syndrome. They're a big cause, actually, of the obesity epidemic and, and uh, the um, sort of mental, mentally ill kids. 
So how much time do we have? Do I have three minutes left? All right, well, let me just quickly kind of run through this. You actually know all this biomarker stuff. Um, uh, but there was a very nice article in Nature Review's Drug Discovery, which is a really good thing to read if you're interested in experimental medicines. It's by Daryl Shep, who runs neuroscience for, um, for uh, Merck, a very smart guy. And, uh, uh, and uh, uh, Vicky introduced the idea, Vicky and Jesse, about um, essentially vectoring in from lots of different information sources to try to understand uh, something about what's going on at a molecular level, um, what drugs uh, might modulate those molecular, um, molecular uh, 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 systems, um, and integrating that with um, all the omics platform data that we um, have. And there are people that are trying to do this. This is a, a group um, uh, that uh, has given, um, in this particular paper, uh, rats, uh, yohimbine and uh, benzodiazepine, and looked using expression arrays to see which genetic, um, which proteins are activated and what the underlying genetics um, uh, might, might be, what, what pathways are, are activated in these, uh, in, these, uh, in these rats. And then they triangulated that with um, what we know from these very large you know, human genetic databases uh, and um, the databases that tell you which pathways get activated with various um, drugs, um, and came up with some hypotheses about ways that um, we could identify new targets um, uh, to treat patients with uh, fear-based um, disorders. And I think we're going to see more and more and more of this. And ultimately, um, uh, what we're asking then is for a systems biology of mental illness, uh, because that will then allow us to to sort of cone down on, on what the best possible targets are and, um, and to let us move towards stratified medicine, which is what we need to do to be able to, to get predictive validity. Um, so this is the PET biomarker that I told you about in Alzheimer's disease that now allows us to identify um, people who, um, who are uh, either going to develop syndromic Alzheimer's or who have mild cognitive impairment and will go on to Alzheimer's disease which is allowing the newest treatments, either biologics or gamma secretase inhibitors or whatever they might be, to be introduced earlier in the course of the illness, hopefully to better um, outcomes. So this is this biomarker all alone by itself. There's also proteomic biomarkers in there, proteomic imaging biomarkers or biosignatures. Um, but this thing is basically revolutionizing the way, such an unlocking drug discovery for Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's disease. So there are there are a bunch of um, there are a bunch of efforts to develop biosignatures that include proteomics and imaging, and it seems like the biosignatures do better than any one biomarker. But <coughs> this biomarker is so good um, that uh, it's probably translatable directly into clinical practice as a freestanding and replacing all the other stuff that people currently do. Mm -hmm. <coughs> thinking I have patients that I know would pay out of pocket to have that scan done. Yeah. But as a clinician, if I get that resolved, can I, is there a therapy that I can say, if you take this therapy, yep. you are going to do better? I mean, that's where yep. we struggle. So there are, there are a bunch of, um, of uh, 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 
monoclonal antibodies that are aimed um, at various constituents of amyloid, and uh, uh, and that uh, in uh, animal models will clear amyloid. The problem is, is that they, it's not a sort of friendly thing to your brain to to do this, and you have um, you have uh, negative consequences. And nobody's figured out how to tune this yet, but there are big trials now in phase three of bapinuzumab and other uh, other um, amyloid clearing monoclonal antibodies, and we'll see whether they make it or, or not. They're much more likely to make it um, if they're used uh, uh, in the early stages of malcognitive impairment than in people that are already fully demented, and those trials haven't gotten started. Um, they're also one of the pathways for making tau is involves an enzyme called gamma secretase, and uh, Lilly had a gamma secretase inhibitor. Unfortunately, there are 40 isozymes of this particular um, this particular protein, and Lilly's molecule killed all of them. And the effect of it was it made everybody really sick. Uh, so now there are uh, gamma secretase inhibitors which are specific to the brain form of this protein, which is involved in the um, in the tau pathway, and, uh, um, and those likely are going to be more successful. Um, so there are a bunch of things that are based on the biology of the illness, rather than the current drugs, which are palliative at best, don't work quite well. Cholinergic enhancers, for example. Um, so we'll see how they we'll see how they do, um, but I think it's actually quite promising. And if you think about this trajectory-based model, Alzheimer's is actually the perfect model for pediatrics. Kind of odd if you think about it, but the trajectory-based work going on in Alzheimer's, based on an intensive biomarker sciences um, effort funded largely by the Foundation for the NIH, uh, uh, is actually the model for where the rest of the field needs to go. So I'm going to skip all this stuff and just show you one more slide. So here's the model. We have a developmental disorder. This is actually borrowed from. Uh, from Tom Insel, who um, borrowed it from Mark Baer, who, with a bunch of other people, sort of broke open the biology of fragile X syndrome. Um, so we have some sort of developmental disorder, and uh, and through gene discovery efforts, we begin to understand the pathways um, that are involved uh, in the um, uh, in the uh, in this particular illness, uh, and. Um, that allows us to drop these gene variants into uh, model organisms. There's no animal model of schizophrenia, but there are model organisms that let you model aspects of these of these uh, uh, illnesses. Um, so um, uh, mice, flies, fish, whatever models are most appropriate, and um, uh, uh, which allows us then to look at cellular um, uh, pathology, gene arrays, whatever it might be that lets us get a better cellular molecular picture of what's of what's uh, going on, what the actual signal transduction cascades are, um, uh, what might be going on in the postsynaptic density, which is pretty important if you think about about um, about uh, uh, synaptic plasticity, uh, uh, and that then allows us to identify novel um, targets, which then takes us off into all the pathways that are uh, required if you're going to build an IND package to get a drug into humans for the um, for the first time, which then allows us to treat this developmental disorder. And the poster child for all this is a, uh, a drug 
developed by uh, Merck, licensed to Seaside Pharmaceuticals for Fragile X. And, um, oops. Well, that's interesting. I didn't make it in here. Okay, so basically the story is um, uh, uh, Fragile X is a, is a, you probably all know this, but it's a tandem repeat in the promoter region for the Fragile X mental retardation protein, FMRP. And FMRP functions as a break on glutaminergic neural transmission um, in the postsynaptic neuron. So you have a lot of glutamate around, which is the major excitatory neurotransmitter in the brain. Um, and the, uh, uh, there's a pathway for taking NMDA and AMPA receptors and recycling them, um, so-called receptor trafficking, to bring them internal to the postsynaptic neuron um, to modulate the extent to which those neurons are stimulated by glutamate. Um, if you take out the FMRP break, which happens in Fragile X syndrome, you now have massively unopposed excitatory neurotransmission, and so the body does what it, you know, what it knows how to do, which is to take all those receptors and bring them into the neuron. Uh, the neuron doesn't function well. It goes from this nice, fat, happy-looking neuron to this little skinny, misshapen neuron. And the effect of that is what we see phenotypically as Fragile X syndrome. Now, there's another receptor on the postsynaptic neuron called the amyglur 5 receptor, which is a receptor for glutamate um, uh, that uh, uh, stimulates this pathway that includes FMRP. And so, absent an FMRP break, if you just put a competitive antagonist at the amyglur 5 receptor in place, you can restore that break using an exogenous small molecule. And the effect of that in fly um, uh, and mouse models of Fragile X syndrome is to normalize, normalize those funny little misshapen neurons um, and to normalize brain, brain function and to normalize behavior within a few weeks. This drug is now out of phase one and starting its first phase 2A proof of concept trial. We're going to be a site on this trial on the DCRU. So now you have a bunch of adults in their 30s who have Fragile X syndrome. All they know about themselves is as a person with Fragile X syndrome. This is who they are, because the mind is what the brain does in, in a real way. And if the drug works in humans like it works in flies, um, within a few weeks, these neurons are going to get rehabilitated, start to function normally, and this person will have a whole different experience of him or herself, because all sorts of off-trajectory information processes are now actually going to start to work again. This is the poster child for what what this is all, all about. And ultimately, this drug will be given early. If it works, will be given to children as soon as they're born, and maybe even before they're born, if you can identify this genetic um, de defect prenatally. Uh, uh, very interesting. The neuroethics of this are really stupendous. <laughs> so it's a wonderful and promising you know, world. It's going to be a long time before we actually figure it all out. Um, most of it because it really is humbling. Most of it will happen um, because of serendipity. It'll be like all of a sudden, you know what happened with iPS cells, induced pluripotent stem cells, uh, you know, just kind of re revolutionized um, uh, stem cell biology, having this additional tool. Um, we'll see the same thing happening. Um, uh, a door will open into a gigantic mansion of other, other possibilities. Um, mostly based on serendipity. It won't be kind of, a, a, you know, there'll be rational medicinal chemistry efforts, but those rational medicinal chemistry efforts will be based on discovery science. Uh, uh, 
uh, it's going to take a lot of money and a lot of time, but um, at least now the route to doing something about mental illness is clear. And it's also clear that if we're going to do it, it's going to have to be in developing organisms. It's going to have to be in children. Um, uh, so uh, we actually are going to move here uh, under the leadership of Helen Egger, who's the new chief of child psychiatry, uh, and a lot of other really smart people. We're going to move here at Duke to um, begin to put the building blocks in place to participate in this. Uh, so I look forward to seeing all of you at various other tables <laughs> as this effort moves um, forward. So, um, so this was interesting. I actually learned a lot and had a lot of fun. I hope it was good for all of you. So I gave you the optimistic version, right? Um, and and if you look at my you know my scientific career, it's been fully funded by the NIH for 25 years, uh, and I have all these relationships with drug companies and um, you know all this sort of interesting um, stuff. Uh, I'm about to lose two thirds of my funding, uh, and uh, I know, yeah. And from the DCRI, because I'm going to step down in this particular job I've got. And the reason for that is that pharma funding has basically gone away. NIH funding has all turned to experimental medicines, mostly on the, on the IND package side, not on the clinical trial side. And the reason for that is that um, there's going to be a five to seven year lag where there's this big investment in translational developmental neuroscience and adult neuroscience, translational neuroscience, um, so that we can begin to develop new targets, you know, new interventions. So sometimes the light shines really brightly in, a, in an area, and sometimes, which it has for the last 20 years, sometimes, you know, somebody, you know, the light gets turned off. And from the point of view of, of therapeutics development, the light is mostly off in, in psychiatry at this point. It's doing better in neurology, but even in neurology, it, it's a hard sell because the brain is just so bloody complicated and all the low-hanging fruit has been picked. Um, there are some things that are interesting that are happening, like um, glutaminergic modulators for treatment-resistant depression can give patients that are severely refractory, uh, uh, have refractory depression, ketamine, and they wake up. So there's a, you know, there are some little bits of light here and there. But for the most part, um, everybody's out waiting for the biology to catch up. Um, so it's both the best of times and the worst of times in my particular therapeutic area. So, so a lot of effort to go back and look at drugs that were tried and, you know, they couldn't identify the right patient population or the right indication, so there's a lot of, you know, development done on those. Is that an area that uh, is, could be fruitful? You know, there... Re, Re-looking again, you know, at these huge uh, stockpiles of drugs that come through the development. So the... So the basic model in psychiatry has been um, just what you what you what you talked about, which is some clinical observation that a drug works in a patient population for which it wasn't originally um, 
uh, established, which is called repurposing. You bring it to another indication. Um, and, uh, and then, if it works, you go after the mechanism of action, look at animal studies, do some clinical trials, and a drug company gets a new indication for whatever molecule that they've, they've got. The new model is the one that I showed you about beginning with, with genetics. Um, I think with the new databases where you can actually look to see whether a pathway is targeted by any molecule, not just a molecule that's used for psychiatry, we're going to see more and more of that. And if you think about all these neuroinflammatory cascades that are involved in mental illness, then a lot of drugs, for example, that are used in rheumatology um, may well have indications in psychiatry. But that's going to be a small part of the picture. Mostly it's going to require new science. Um, uh, and one thing that you can say if you think about pharma is that they're desperate. They are incredibly desperate for, because they're all basically falling off a gigantic cliff, patent cliff. And if there was something out there that was magical, um, they, would, they would have invested in it already. Um, most of them have pristine, and they have, Pfizer calls it their medicine cabinet. They have several hundred pristine molecules which have been advanced for one thing or another thing, and, and they haven't um, gone anywhere. The companies are shopping these things around with academics to try to figure out some way to leverage this investment in these actually really quite good molecules, which means their ideas are bankrupt. And uh, uh, so I, I actually think that it, it really is humbling. We're going to have to wait until serendipity turns up new targets. And that's, that, that's going to require this investment in basic and translational neuroscience. And then it'll be off to the races again. Once somebody gets one of these things, then there'll be a ton of activity. But right now, we're in this lull period. Uh, uh, and that's just how science works. So thank you very much. I decided I was going to step down as head of neurosciences medicine. You know, they're paying me this fabulously large salary which has been, you know, wonderful for four years, but with relatively little return on investment. I mean, we basically tread water, and there's not much chance that, um, that they're going to be able to grow neurosciences medicine in the same way that, for example, um, IDGI is growing. Um, and so I've had a bunch of conversations with Bob and Eric about it. And, um, hey, what about DCRU? Would, would DCRU be a better place for you to put your energy to sort of work on these the systems biology? Um, well, it's all turning toward experimental medicine. So the question is, are we going to be able to capture business on the DCRU? And that's likely to be true. But even so, the, the pie is dramatically shrunk. And there's tons of people competing for, you know, competing for it. So uh, I decided what I want to do with my life is I wanted to get up in the morning and do exactly you know, what I want to do. I mean, remember in junior high school doing science projects? Yeah, what was fun. And I, you know, I'm actually pretty tired of business development. You're going to be, I mean, I think that's actually the best use of your talents. Yeah. This, this, whatever, what you end up doing. I think that's, you know, when 